All right, so we're going we're gonna to deal this morning with a um, pretty deep topic. And the reason we're doing this is because, um, well, we're doing the Reformation, and you can't get around this topic in, if you're studying the Reformation and what these guys wrestled with and what they discovered. And so we're going to talk about basically what's wrong with us, um, what's wrong with mankind. And then, of course, the, the theological term is depravity, the depravity of man. And you, you may think, okay, so why are we doing this? Um, I, I know I'm depraved, but I'm saved. Uh, why, why would we waste our time talking about this? Because of the fact that I think within the church today, um, we don't fully appreciate the gospel. We don't fully appreciate justification, which we talked about last week, God making us right with him through the death of Jesus Christ. We don't appreciate it because we don't fully understand just how bad we were. And we don't fully understand just how bad this world is and why it needs salvation, why it needs a savior. So we're gonna talk about depravity. And it's not a typical topic that comes up in the teaching on or the study of the Reformation. Like Ted's not gonna do a series or a sermon on depravity. It's probably gonna come up as he deals with the five solas. But um, as I've studied uh, this topic over the last year, it, it just keeps coming up over and over again with the reformers as they wrestled with the scriptures. And again, if you get into Romans and Ephesians and Galatians and Psalms and so many of the passages that are, like a Martin Luther was wrestling with as a theologian, as a professor, as a teacher, he, he kept running across these verses and he had to put them up against what he saw taught in the Catholic church and he realized that this is an issue and we got to figure out what we believe about it. And one of the interesting things about the Reformation and, and these men as they began to wrestle with the scriptures, um, they didn't all agree. Um, over time, as the Reformation went on, you've got a Martin Luther and then along comes a guy named Calvin and you've got others and even Melanchthon who was kind of the secondhand man to Martin Luther. They didn't always agree and you had this divergence. As a matter of fact, I've got a chart of um, all the different denominations that spun out of the Reformation. You know, so it starts out, you've got the Roman Catholic Church, and it was the main show in town, if not the only show in town. And then here, here comes Martin Luther, and suddenly you had, out of him come the Lutherans, and out, out of, uh, you know, Calvin comes the Reformed churches, and you've got Baptists and Anabaptists, and you've got Methodists, and you've got Lutherans, and all kinds of churches. And, and part of that was they began to wrestle with some of these deep, deep topics, and I want us to wrestle with these deep, deep topics. As a matter of fact, tomorrow you're going to get an email if it goes out like it's supposed to, and I'm sending you uh, two articles that I want you to read. Both of them are fairly lengthy. Both of them are fairly deep, but you can handle it. Um, and I want you to read these articles because they don't agree with one another, both written by Christians from two different perspectives on this topic. And why I want you to read them is I want you to wrestle with what you think you believe about this topic. I don't want you to walk away going, well, Ken told me or Ted told me. I want you to go to the mat with God over these issues because they're, they're vital. Total depravity permeates everything in terms of what we believe about the gospel. And we talked last week about justification, which answers that question, how do I get made right with God? How do I attain righteousness, the kind of righteousness that God will approve of? And we realized last week, I don't have it in me. 
I can't manufacture that kind of righteousness, never will. And so he imputes his righteousness to me. He took on my sin, he gave me his righteousness. And therefore, I can stand before God as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, not my own inherent internal righteousness. But it begs the question then, you know, well, how did that happen? Um, and if we don't deal with sin and the reality of sin and the depth of sin and the total depravity of us as human beings, why, why worry about salvation? In other words, if I'm not totally depraved, if I, if I don't have depravity permeating every part of my being, then why do I need a savior? Can I save myself? Don't I have the spark of goodness that will allow me to do the things I need to do, to live the life I need to live, to please a holy God? And the reformers were discovering that, no, you don't. It, and it's worse than you think. Our sin is worse than we think. So they began to deal with, wrestle with this thing called um, depravity. And what they began to discover through the scriptures is the extent of depravity was far worse and far greater than they even imagined. And it, it ran against what they had been taught, what they had heard, and they wanted to figure out, okay, well, just how bad is it and what do we do about it and how does it impact us? How do we get rid of the effects of sin? And it goes all the way back, all the way back to original sin, the sin of Adam. And we're not going to be able to unpack all of that this morning, but we're going to kind of dip our toe into it and really begin to understand that with the sin of Adam, something transformed, something happened in the world that has impacted every human being that has ever lived. Now, you may say, well, I don't believe in total depravity. I don't believe in the sin of mankind. If you've got kids, you believe in total depravity. If you have grandkids, you believe in total depravity. I sat in my office at my home just last week with two of my grandkids. One's two, one's two and a half. Still don't speak yet. They're sitting on the floor playing with at least a dozen toys. And they fought over one toy. And I mean, it, it got nasty. And, and the only one who can speak at all, all she could say was, no Schaefer, mine, no Schaefer, mine. And she would take it away from him. And he goes, he just, he didn't speak. He just grunted and took it back. And I'm like, guys, guys, there's, you know, there's 11 more toys. No, no, mine, no, no Schaefer, push him, knock him down. Total depravity. Sweet little kids, love them to death, but they came out of the womb with a sin problem. Right? <laughs> they, they have a sin nature and it doesn't take long for them to show it. So here we are. It's because of sinfulness, guys, that we are separated from God. So mankind in his sin is separated from God. And we're going to look at a lot of passages to support that. But the reformers wanted to understand what is our sin so that we can understand the beauty and the glory and the greatness of what? Grace through Jesus Christ and justification. So in the 16th century, this period that we're talking about, we have to realize that the Renaissance was happening and taking place and it brought along humanism, not the kind of humanism we have today where it's all about us. It's a different brand and breed of humanism. And it was a very optimistic outlook that the world is gonna get better. It's being renewed. You often hear of this period of time referred to as the, the dark ages. And it really, was in a certain way, just in terms of, you know, 
uh, sickness and disease, and, and, but it really was a time of great learning, a time of great uh, renewal going on as people began to understand literature. Literacy rates were going up. People were learning to read. And so what happened was the humanists began to look at society and say, we can make it better. We can improve this. We have it within us to improve it. And they would look at sin and they'd basically go, sin is not an issue. We can overcome sin. It's just people have problems, people have issues, but we can overcome them through education, through better government, through, doesn't that sound familiar? Um, it's the world in which we live, right? You know, we can fix this problem with better education, handouts, you name it. We, we can make it better, better housing, free food. Uh, we, we can take care of this problem. But it's worse than they thought. And so Darmade McCulloch in his book on the Reformation says, the most distinctive feature of Renaissance humanism was a spirit of playful optimism. It's going to get better. It bred an excitement about possibilities for the future. Humanists took for granted that human beings were created to do good. Their outlook and conduct could be transformed by the persuasive power of poetry and rhetoric or by the reading the Bible aright. Humanists, what they brought to the equation, and we talked about this last week, was they brought to the issue, you got to go back to the original languages. You got to go back to the Hebrew. You got to go back to the Greek. So when they would read, now keep in mind, when we say humanists, it's not here are the humanists, here are the Christians. They were part of the Catholic church. They weren't this splinter group of atheists or agnostics. They were Christians who happened to be humanists and who they would say, you got to be able to read the Bible in its original languages, the Hebrew, the Greek. And, and if you did that, if you got away from bad translations and you could read the Bible in its original languages, then you would be able to live the life you've been called to live. Optimistic. We can do this. People need to be educated. And one of the greatest humanists of that period of time was Erasmus, okay? He and Luther did not get along. He and Luther would have ongoing debates, um, and probably debates a weak word to use because Luther didn't like him in the least, and he would write diatribes about Erasmus. And Erasmus had been influenced by another gentleman called Origen. Origen was older. And basically, they looked at this whole idea of man being depraved, and they just said, doesn't exist. Um, it's not true. Man is not depraved. Man is inherently good. Man didn't inherit the sins of Adam. Adam's sin, he got what he deserved, but we don't get the same thing. And so it was a very optimistic, positive way of looking at the sins of man. And Origen, I found this fascinating. Origen had suggested that in the end, when all is said and done, God envisaged that everyone, including the devil himself, would be saved and returned to paradise. So here's Origen. Again, he's, he's a Catholic. He's a theologian. He's, he's looking at this idea of depravity and sin, and he says, you know, it's not as bad as we've been told. It's it's even Satan's going to turn around. Even he has the capacity to come back to God. So if that's the mindset that's kind of floating around and becoming pervasive in your society, and then you're Martin Luther and you're reading Ephesians and Galatians and Romans and you're, well, wait a minute. That's not what this book says. You're going to start to wrestle. And these reformers began to wrestle and debate and 
talk and dialogue. And one of the things I want to see happen in, in this group of men is that you too will begin to debate and dialogue and, and converse and talk about these issues, not in a confrontive, combative way, but I want you to wrestle with these topics and not just go, well, I went to Bible study and Ken told me this and whew, now I know. No, I want you to really go to the, the table and fight with God about this and wrestle with what do you believe about these issues and why are they even important? So depravity. In the writings of the Greek philosopher Aristotle, he, um, he greatly influenced this age uh, that we're talking about. He influenced er uh, uh, Origen. He influenced Thomas Aquinas. He influenced so many of the writers of this day. And the humanists especially admired Aristotle. And, and they brought a lot of his teachings in. And one of the things he said was, we become righteous by doing righteous deeds. Now keep in mind, last week we talked about what? Justification. What is the doctrine of justification teaches that this is not true. You cannot become righteous by doing righteous deeds. You'll never get there. It won't happen. It can't take place. But this, this idea had influenced the humanists who are now influencing the church and people within the church. And Martin Luther, because of what he's studying, is going to bow up and begin to fight this. So Luther has a different view on God's justice and original sin than Erasmus. Okay, because Erasmus is influenced by Origen, who's been influenced by Aristotle. A human being becomes, according to Luther, not righteous because he acts righteously, as Aristotle thought, but only when a human being is justified, which presupposes conversion, that one can act righteously. So what we believe, Luther believed, we believe, is that until God deems you righteous because of the blood of Christ, in other words, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he sees you through the blood of Christ, and you are therefore legally righteous in his eyes, then you can begin to do righteous deeds. You, if you're in Christ today, you can do righteous deeds. You can do good deeds. You can do things that are pleasing to God, not for salvation, but because you now have the spirit within you. You have a power you didn't used to have. You have a new nature. And that's directly against what Aristotle taught, what Origen taught, and now what Erasmus is teaching. And so this causes a debate between these two men, and they begin to debate and fight over the role of Aristotle. Should we be taking this ancient Greek and, and letting him influence what we believe about the scriptures? Should we be applying this to what we know? Doesn't mean that everything that Aristotle said was wrong or Plato, or, but do we take what they say and then put it over scripture? We talked about this, right? Scripture has to take precedence. What does the Bible say? If Aristotle or anybody disagrees with Scripture, who do we listen to? According to Luther, we listen to Scripture. Go back to the Scriptures. And so it, it starts this debate. And so Luther loved to write. Um, he just couldn't put the pen down. And he was prolific. And so he writes this thing called the Disputation Against Scholastic Theology. And we're not going to go through it. It's a lengthy document. It's really a boring read. Uh, but he wrote it the same year he wrote his 95 Theses. And this one he had 97. And he just, he just lays it out. Here's, here's where I disagree with Erasmus. And I'm just going to show you a few of them. He says, we do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds, but having been made righteous by God through Christ, 
we do righteous deeds. Huge difference. This is an opposition to the philosophers, speaking of Aristotle. 43, it's an error to say that no man can become a theologian without Aristotle. So Erasmus and others were saying, well, unless you fully understand Aristotle, this ancient Greek, you'll never be a good theologian. And Luther's like, why do I need Aristotle when I got Paul and I got Jesus and I got the Bible? He goes on and says, indeed, no one can become a theologian unless he becomes one without Aristotle. In other words, kick Aristotle to the curb and get into your Bible. Quit worrying about what the Greek philosopher said and get into your Bible. What does God say? Listen to the word of God. Then he says briefly, the whole Aristotle, the whole idea of Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light. You know, he didn't mince words, did he? I mean, you knew where Luther stood. You know, basically, Aristotle's a part of darkness. Don't listen to this guy. And again, I, I don't know. I think he was a little overbearing with his thoughts. I think there's things we can learn from Aristotle and Plato and others, but we've got to always put it up against what? Scripture. But this was a period of time when there was so much debate over what truth was and where do we get truth and how do we know what to believe about things like salvation, things like our sin and depravity. Number 75 says, the grace of God, however, makes justice abound through Jesus Christ because it causes one to be pleased with the law. It's because we've been made right with God through Jesus and God deems us as righteous and we receive the spirit of God that we can do good things. We can, we can live according to the law. Perfectly, no, because we still have a sin nature, but we have a capacity we didn't have before Christ. So every deed of the law without the grace of God appears good outwardly, but inwardly it is sin. In other words, if you try to keep the law without Christ, prior to Christ, as a means to earn salvation, you'll always end up in sin. Your righteous deeds will be like filthy rags, as the scriptures say. And so you can see this debate, uh, this fight that's going on within Christendom at this period of time. And Luther's going to, he's going to fall to the, to the point of everything you do, everything you do, your best deeds on your best day without Christ are sinful. What's Erasmus saying? No, 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 not true. See, even within the Catholic church, then even now, when you are baptized into the Catholic church, your sin in Adam is erased. They believe in original sin. It's just in baptism as an infant, your sin is erased and you get a do over. You get cleansed from that sin. You're no longer responsible for that sin. What's Luther discovering as he reads the scripture? No, you can get baptized. You can get dipped. You can get dunked. You can walk you can do all kinds of things, but unless you know Christ and have received the righteousness of Christ and it's been imputed to you, you still have the sin of Adam. You still have the guilt of Adam. You have the imputed sin of Adam. You have the inherent sin of Adam. In other words, my two grandkids clearly have sin in their hearts and lives, even at that young age. And it ends up empowering you and enslaving you. And guys, you don't have to go very far. You just pick up the paper, turn on the news, go to Fox News on the internet or whatever one you like, and you, you see sin permeating everything in this world, everything. Our sin nature, while not preventing us from doing good deeds, does keep us from doing righteous ones. 
if we're not in Christ, okay? And so that's what Luther is wrestling with, and he's arguing with Erasmus about this, and Erasmus is saying, sin does not enslave me. I can either sin or I can do good deeds. I have the choice each and every day, which is gonna bring up the battle over free will, which we're still fighting today. Am I free to do good? Am I free to do bad? Do I have, you know, is it up to me? And this, this whole period of time with the influence of humanism, it was becoming increasingly more about man. And the enlightenment's gonna get, it really kick it into full gear that man can do anything he puts his heart and mind to. Man can do good things, man can do great things. And the truth is, guys, we look around us and we see wonderful things that are the result of the capacity of man to do good. The lights, electricity, air conditioning, you know, we have cars that we drive. We have so many things we benefit from because man can do good things, but man cannot do righteous things in God's eyes. That's the difference. Man give. Man, man, uh, there are, there are non-Christian groups. There are Muslim groups. There are all kinds of groups that are taking aid to South Texas. That's a good thing, right? That's a wonderful thing. That's philanthropic. But in God's eyes, those deeds are not righteous, without Christ. They're good on a moral level from an earthly level, but they are not deeds that will ever earn anybody righteous standing before God. And you see how, this, how deep this is getting really quick that Luther is, it's like Luther has put his toe in the pond and suddenly he's up to here because he's dealing with doctrines. As you dig into the Bible, guys, that's what happens is that it gets deeper and deeper. And the more I've studied the, the Reformation, I, I, I keep running across more and more things. So I'm laying in bed last night reading about more and more about total depravity and the original sin of men. And it's just, you may say, well, you're, what's wrong with you? You know, but it's fascinating to me because it helps me learn things that I didn't know before. And it helps me, it builds my faith. It strengthens my convictions. And it also tests what I think I know and that I'm so confident about. And suddenly I go, oh, I never heard that perspective. And what does it do? It drives me back to the word. What does the Bible say? That's exactly what was happening to Luther and others. Luther would say that men are free, or Erasmus would say that men are free not to sin. Totally different than what we've heard Luther saying and what we're gonna hear the other reformers saying. And it's this Latin phrase, passe non pecari. Here's what it means. The ability not to sin. Erasmus, who is a Catholic, who is a Christian, who's a theologian, who's living at the same time, is basically telling people, you have the ability not to sin. Remember humanism, optimism, everything's great, we can change the world. You have the ability not to sin. And Luther is again going, not according to the scriptures, not according to what I'm reading, you don't have the ability not to sin. And he would say, Erasmus would say, we, we lost, or Luther would say, we lost this as a result of the fall. Prior to the fall, Adam, was living in a righteous relationship with God. We're told he walked with God, talked with God. He had a relationship with God and he had a choice. You can either obey me or you can disobey me. You can eat of the tree or not eat of the tree. If you eat of the tree, it brings death. If you don't eat of the tree, you'll have life. And the inference there is you'll have immortality. What did he do? He ate. Well, you say, well, no, his wife did. Well, she, he was standing there right next to her. 
and he ate with her, and he fell. And as a result, they were cursed. And as a result, we've been cursed. And everything since that point in time has been tainted by what? Sin. And man lost the ability not to sin. My two grandchildren do not have the ability not to sin. And I hate that. But it drives me to want them to come to know Christ. Because the only way they'll have the ability not to sin is how? Through Christ. And that should drive your desire to see your lost loved ones who also no longer have the capacity not to sin to come to faith in Christ so that they can receive new natures. See, Romans 5.12, which is one of the things, one of the verses Luther would have discovered in teaching this book at the seminary in Wittenberg, says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. Ever since Adam, everybody's died. There are only a couple of people I know of, Jesus and a couple of Old Testament characters who did not die but were taken by God. But everybody dies. Why? Everyone sinned. Everyone. It means everyone has sinned ever since the fall. Your kids, your grandkids, you, your wife, and we do it every day. And so it brings up this issue of total depravity, and, and, and this is such a negative concept to every guy in the room. We, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to debate about it. It's, it's just so negative, but it's so important for us to understand. And sometimes it's associated with another concept called total inability, which basically means you, you can't not sin. You don't have the ability not to sin. You're going to sin. You, you can have a great quiet time this morning. Even as a believer, with the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, you can have a great quiet time. Get in your car. Get on the road. Somebody cut you off, and you cuss like a sailor. Where's that come from? You have a sin nature. You, you do have a, a, a capacity now not to sin, but you still have the ability to sin. And you will until you're glorified, until you get to heaven. And so total depravity, I was joking with a couple of guys this morning, um, one, one being senior, one being junior, father and son, and I said, I'm going to talk about total depravity. When I talk about depravity, I'm going to put junior on the screen. And when I talk about total depravity, I'm going to put senior on the screen. You know, just uh, the older we get, the worse it gets. But the truth is, it's, it's bad from the beginning. Total depravity is about intensity. As a result of the fall, every man, every woman, every child born is infected by sin. All of us. It's, it's all encompassing. It's all around us. And it does not mean, and this is where it gets negative to a lot of people, it doesn't mean you're as bad as you ever will be or you're as depraved as you ever could be. It's not about your capacity to not do good things. You do good things. You take care of your family. You go to work. You open the door for people. You, you're kind. You're compassionate. But it means that sin has infected every area of your life. You ever done something good for somebody and you do it with the right attitude? I want to help this person. And then they don't thank you and you get mad at them. <laughs> you ungrateful jerk. I just helped you. I did a good thing for you and you didn't even thank me. You jerk. That's sin. That's the capacity of sin to permeate even our good deeds that we do well. And then somebody doesn't pat us on the back and we get angry and we get frustrated. And it 
Depravity renders you and I, what? Incapable of righteousness in our, in our flesh. You know, one of the things that Paul talks a lot about is the fact that you have within you, in Galatians, we have that chapter five, that picture of your sin nature, when you give into your sin nature, which you can do and do every day, or you give into the spirit, the control of the spirit, you can either produce works of the flesh or you can produce the works of the spirit as he works through you. It's a choice. You have a choice every day, even as a believer. And so that's something we need to constantly remind ourselves of and why this is so important, why it was important to Luther and these other men. I love what R.C. Sproul, what he says about total depravity. He actually calls it radical corruption. I think it's his attempt to get away from total depravity because it's so negative to people. So he just calls it radical corruption. I don't know that it's improved it. You know, it still sounds pretty negative. But listen to what he says. It's not something that merely taints an otherwise good personality. Rather, it is that the corruption goes to the root or core of our humanity, and it affects every part of our character and being. The effect of this corruption reaches our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies, indeed the whole person. And so if you understand that as a Christian, you understand why the world does what it does. You should not be shocked about how the world behaves. You should not be shocked by genocide. You should not be shocked by um, child trafficking. You should not be shocked by the things of this world because it has permeated everything. You shouldn't be shocked at some of the behavior of your children. Where did you learn that? They were born with it. You know, we, we sometimes think, well, God, I'm, I remember when my, my, uh, one of my sons got off in the weeds spiritually and was doing things he shouldn't be doing. And my wife and I would have these conversations. Where did we go wrong? What did we do wrong? And finally I said, I don't know that we did anything wrong. We raised him the same way we raised other five kids. He got off into the weeds. He heard the same messages from us and saw the same lifestyle from us that our other kids, he got off in the weeds. Why? Because he has a sin nature. And, and it's not that we did anything wrong. And if you don't understand this concept, you'll always be confused about what's going on around you. How could God let this happen? How could God allow these evil things to happen around the world? It happened because of the fall. We brought it on ourselves and we continue to bring it on ourselves. And so this, the reformers, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, all these guys began to look at sin and realize we got a problem here. And it, it basically renders mankind unrighteous. Now remember, they're living in a point in time, they're living in the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically encompasses what we know as modern Germany and up into the north, uh, into the Netherlands and, and down in the south into Italy. And, and they, but everybody's what? Catholic. Everybody's been baptized into the church for the most part. And they're realizing that there's incredible unrighteousness going on in our holy Roman empire. Remember I told you all three of those titles are misnomers. It's not holy. It's not Roman. It's not an empire. It it has an emperor, but he's not really in control of much of anything. And so this idea of righteousness being non-existent apart from Christ, they're beginning to see it and they're beginning to understand why things are the way they are. So without righteousness, We're separated from God. Our sin is what separates us. That's why it's so silly for anybody to think I can do good deeds and earn my way into God's good graces. I use the illustration. I don't think I used it with you guys, but 
If I met a guy on th uh, Tuesday night when I taught out of the other campus. I met this guy, he's six foot three, built like a brick house, former Marine, still looks like a Marine, probably in his 40s. And he's talking to me and I'm just staring up at him. And, and I, I thought, you know, if I brought that guy up and I stood him next to me and I said, I'm gonna look like him one day. You'd all do what you just did, you just laughed. Some of you just grinned, some just laughed out loud. But you'd go, there's no way you're ever gonna look like him. First of all, you're never gonna be 63. You're never gonna be in your 40s again and you will never have a body like that. You would say, that's ridiculous. You're delusional. You're wasting your time. See, that's how silly it is for us to say, if Jesus Christ is my standard of righteousness, holy perfection, the very image of God, God himself in human form, and I look and say, I'm gonna be like him someday and that's gonna get me into heaven. I hope you'd laugh at me and go, you're delusional. There's no way. You can't pull that off. See, what's going against me is, you know, like me trying to look like the six foot three ex-Marine is everything's going against me. This body, my own determination to do what it's gonna to take to even get remotely like that. I don't have it within me. I'm gonna run out of steam pretty quickly because every day I'm gonna look at me and look at him and go, I'm not getting any closer. I'm running on a treadmill. That's what drove Luther crazy. I'm doing all this stuff and I'm not getting any more like Christ. I keep coming up with more sins to confess. And he, he discovers this verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody, all men. And what are the wages of sin? Death, not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. Sin separates mankind from God. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's not an individual on this earth who does good and never sins. They don't exist. Apart from what? Christ. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Do you see why as he gets into the scriptures and he begins studying and teaching, he realizes over and over again, the scriptures clearly teach that we have a sin problem. Psalm 143, in your sight, God, no man living is righteous. No man. And I, I can go out today and I can find some pretty righteous looking people. I can find people who do really good things and they're philanthropic and they're loving and they're kind and gracious, but they have a problem and their problem is sin. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, they are completely separated from God, no matter how many good things they do, because their good deeds are what? As filthy rags before God. This, this is a huge kind of eye-opening uh, uh, wake-up call to these reformers as they begin to realize that what they've been taught all their life in the Catholic Church, that you can somehow gain righteousness, they realize is, it's more impossible than I ever thought because of what the scriptures teach. You know, Erasmus basically said, the problem with mankind is we're just lazy. We just don't try hard enough. You just got to do more. You got to kick it into a new gear. And some of us live like that, right? You, you just go, God, I got I to be a better Christian. I got to read my Bible more. I got to memorize more scripture. And you go through these periods of time where you memorize three or four verses. And then two weeks later, you can't remember even where they were found. And then you get frustrated. So you stop. And then you get back into a new gear and you kick it into, this is, this is you know, you're just lazy. Work harder. Do more. Man could choose, again, not to sin, according to Erasmus. But the reformers basically say, no, everything man does is tainted by, infected with sin. 
Listen to what Erasmus said. No devotion, you're lazy. Every one of you are lazy. No devotion better pleases Mary than the emulation of humility. Would you please Peter and Paul? Then emulate the faith of the one and the charity of the other. Would you imitate St. Francis? As it, is, as it is, you are arrogant, avaricious, and contentious. Control your temper, despise lucre, overcome evil with good. Kick your butt into gear. You're lazy. Work harder. Do more. Be like Mary. Be like Peter. Be like Paul. Be like St. Francis. It's interesting. He doesn't say anything about Jesus. But it's, you're just lazy. Work harder. Well, here you got a guy like Luther. What's the problem with Luther? Luther basically almost destroyed his body working harder in the, in the, in, um, the monastery. And he's realizing that, man, I worked harder than anybody, and it didn't get me anywhere. I was more depressed, and I ended up hating God because I couldn't please God. So once again, we got a sin problem. It's not a behavior problem. It's a being problem. What does that mean? It's, it's ontological. It's, it's, I am a sinner. Okay. It's, I do it every day. You do it every day. I have a sin nature and it shows up every day. We read again, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to who? Everyone for everyone's sin. There's nobody who hasn't. By our very nature, we're subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. So again, before we come to faith in Christ, this is who we are. This is where we're living. I was his enemy. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Sin permeated everything. Above all else, we're told in Proverbs, guard your heart. Why? Because from there flows everything. It's not, it's not just behavior. It's a heart issue, guys. At the end of the day, sin is a heart issue. Out of the heart, Jesus said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's a heart issue. That's why if you've got a kid and your kid's doing things you don't like, and all you do is say, stop doing that. You don't, you don't do that in my home. I refuse to let you do that. How, how effective is that? It's never worked for me. You know, they just sit there and go, okay, I, dad, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And then they do it again. Why? Because I'm not addressing the heart issue. I'm dealing with behavior. And Erasmus was dealing with behavior. But Luther's learning it's not about behavior. It's about our heart, our very being. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked who really knows how bad it is. See, even you as a Christian and me as a Christian, and I have the Holy Spirit living within me, and I spend time in the Word every day, and I pray, and I have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and I can read my Bible, and then I can have the most wicked thought an hour later. I can have an immoral thought. I can lust after somebody else's wife and because my heart is so wicked. Even as a believer, guys, why? Because I have a still, I still have a sin nature that if I listen to it or if I feed it by watching the wrong kind of TV shows or looking at the wrong kind of magazine or hanging with the wrong kind of people, I'm feeding the monster within me. It's like a guy we had come years ago and talked to us and he said, you know, for many of us, we, we keep all these things around us that we don't need and they tempt us. It's like somebody trying to lose weight who keeps eclairs in the refrigerator. And we can't understand why we don't lose weight because we keep feeding the monster. We don't rid these things out of our lives. So it's a problem. 
Just look at these passages. Man heart is, man's heart is wicked. Man is spiritually dead. Man is alienated from God. Man has been spiritually blinded. Man prefers darkness over light. Man has no spiritual discernment. That's the scripture's definition and description of mankind. We have a problem. Again, why is this important? What's, what's the big issue? If sin is not much of a problem, and many in the world today think there is no such thing as sin, we just have issues with society. If sin's not much of a problem, Christ need not be much of a savior, and we do not need much grace. Only if I see my plight is so bad that I can't fix myself will I find true freedom in Christ, for only then will I stop depending on myself and depend on him. This is all about dependency, and why this is important for you and I, even as believers who have new natures and the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us is I need to know how much I need him every day. See, I think salvation is a daily thing. I walked the aisle in my dad's church at seven years old. I gave my, my life to Jesus Christ. And then I spent many of my adult years living apart from Christ, even though to this day, I think I legitimately accepted Christ. I did not live for Christ because I didn't do what? I didn't grow up in my salvation. I didn't return to the cross every day going, I need you today. I can't do this without you. I don't have the strength. I need your strength. It's about dependency. It's about leaning on him. So here's the so what, guys. This is a great question to ponder. Are we sinners because we sin? In other words, when you sin, does that make you a sinner? Erasmus would say, yes. Luther would say, no. He would say, we sin because we're sinners. You come out of the womb a sinner. You, you come out of the womb inherit, having inherited and having imputed to you the sin of Adam, the sin nature of Adam. And, and I, I know if you've watched the birth of your kids, it's really hard to, to put those two together and watch that baby come out of the womb and hold them in your hands and go, you sweet little sinner. You, you, you little depraved wretch. But biblically, that's their condition. They don't have to commit their first sin to become a sinner. And that may rock your world and that may really bug you, especially if you're expecting a baby to come soon. But it's, it's, if we don't grasp that and understand that, that that's the problem of mankind and that's why the gift of Jesus Christ is so important. It's not your acts of sin that condemn you guys. It's the fact that you're a sinner. You're already condemned. That's why in Romans 8, 1, where it says, now there is there, therefore now no condemnation in Christ for those who are in Christ. When you come to faith in Christ, you're removed from condemnation. We're born into it and we're only removed from it by Jesus Christ. It is our inherent sinful state that's our problem. That's the world's problem. What's the solution? Well, it's Jesus Christ. So here's an illustration that helps me. We... Adam was sinless, okay? Not us. We come into the world sinful. We, we have an ancestor, Adam, who was made sinless, and then he sinned. What happened with that sin? It permeated everything, every core of his being. What's the first thing he and the, his wife did? They hid. They tried to cover themselves. They were ashamed of their nakedness. Then they blamed one another for their sin. Sin permeates. And so we are now... In Latin, non passe, non pecare, no longer able not to sin. That's the state of mankind since the fall. Everything we do is tainted by sin. Isaiah says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. 
And, and again, I'm not, I'm not going through this to depress you. I'm not doing this to make you feel bad about yourself because if you're in Christ, that's not your problem now, but it is the problem of the world around you. What's the solution? The same solution you found, the same solution Martin Luther found, it's Jesus Christ. Why does it matter? The effect of total depravity on a person is his total inability to freely choose to come to Christ and be delivered from his sins. The unregenerate person is free to choose to do whatever he desires to do, but he will choose to act in a manner that is consistent with his sinful fallen nature. In other words, no unbeliever left to a sinful free will will ever choose to become a Christian. Now, there's, this is one that you're going to, some of you are going to go, what? If you grow up Southern Baptist like I did, you're going to go, huh? That's not what I heard. And I'm not going to answer all the questions of this, this morning, and that's why I'm going to give you those two articles tomorrow. I want you to wrestle with this issue about free will. Free will is toxic in the Christianity today in the world today. Your concept of free will. He says, you are free to choose to do, prior to Christ, you're free to choose to, to do whatever your will desires. Well, according to total depravity, what's the problem? Everything you think, will, or desire is evil. So you're not going to choose to do good things, righteous things, the will of God. You're going to choose to do what your heart desires. What did we just read about your heart? It's evil. It's wicked. You don't even know how depraved your heart is. And so I want you to wrestle with this, guys, because it once again goes back to the issue of who's in charge, who's on first base, who's king, who's sovereign, who's ruler. And here's what's going to happen. The reason we have Baptists, the reason we have uh, primitive Baptists and Reformed Baptists and Southern Baptists and all kinds of Baptists and why we have Methodists and Lutherans and all these denominations is they began to debate over just how depraved we are and just how much free will we really have. And that's why I want you to read these articles because I want you to know what you believe and why you believe in it. And it better be based on scripture. It better be based on what God says and not what somebody told you from a pulpit. Romans 3, 9 through 12, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. Let me read that again. No one is seeking God. You remember the seeker-sensitive movement? What a misnomer that somehow we think everybody out there is seeking God. The scriptures make it really clear. There's nobody seeking God. Now, they may be seeking happiness, they may be seeking contentment, they may be seeking joy, they may be seeking comfort, all kinds of things, but they are not seeking the God of the Bible. They're seeking something to satisfy themselves. Nobody seeks God. God looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks down to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God, but no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Do you see why this impacted Luther so much and impacted all the other reformers? That nobody out there is really wanting to do what God wants done. And here's our doctrinal statement in case you want to know. We believe that man was originally created in the image and after the likeness of God and that he fell through sin. And as a consequence of his sin, he lost his spiritual life, becoming dead in trespasses and sins, and that he became subject to the power of the devil it goes on. We also believe that this spiritual death or total depravity of human nature has been transmitted to the entire human race of man, the man Christ Jesus alone being accepted, and hence that every child of Adam is born into the world with a nature which not only possesses no spark of divine life, but is essentially and unchangeably bad apart from what? 
divine grace, justification, the gift of Jesus Christ. It's not by your works. So Titus tells us it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit that you come to faith in Christ. You don't muster it up. You don't go on a search and a journey and then, aha, you find God. You know, you'll, you'll hear stories of people that, yeah, man, I just opened up my Bible one day and I, start, I, I didn't know Christ. I started reading the book of John and I discovered Jesus and I accepted him. Where did that come from? God. His Holy Spirit had to open your eyes because the scriptures are pretty clear, guys, that you're dead, you're blind, you're lifeless, you're hopeless, you're apart from God, you don't seek God, you don't do righteous deeds. What would possess you to seek that which is righteous? God. That his Holy Spirit gives you that. He opens your eyes so that you can see for the first time in your life truth, the gospel, the good news. If that doesn't happen, in my estimation, you will never find what you're looking for in and of yourself. Why? Because of the concept, the doctrine of total depravity. So once again, what do we do with this information? And I'm going to skip on because I want you guys to talk about this. I don't tell you this to depress you. If you're in Jesus Christ today, which I hope most of you are, but I know not all of you are, but if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, you have redemption through Jesus Christ. You have been justified by God the Father. He looks at you and sees you as righteous. You have a guaranteed place in heaven, but you still live on this planet. You still have a sin nature, but you have the capacity for the first time in your life to do righteousness because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You should be encouraged. But the problem is, what about all those around you who don't know Christ? They need to be told about this. Now, you may say, well, if God's the one that does it all, why do I need to bother? Because the scriptures demand that you do, that you tell, that you share, that you tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want you to be aware of just how depraved the world is, how depraved you were until God saved you. And I want you to understand that they need what you have. They need to know about this Savior. So what are some ways you can tell that mankind is totally depraved or radically corrupt? This question should not take you long. As a matter of fact, you could spend the whole morning making a list. That's not my goal. Why do you think it's so important that we see our salvation as a work of God from start to finish? What happens if we start trying to take credit for any part of it? What's wrong with that picture? Who gets the glory when we do that? Discuss what you think about the idea that the state of man's total depravity requires his total dependency upon God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit for salvation. Remember what I said, it's about dependency. Who do you depend on for your salvation? Not just at a point in time, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Who do you depend upon for your salvation every day of your life? That's why we get in the Word. That's why we study the Scriptures. That's why we pray, because I need His help every day to live the life I've been called to live. And it will take place until he calls me home or he comes back to get us. Father, I thank you for these men. I pray that you would guide their conversations around these tables. I pray, Father, that they would be motivated to dig into your word and to understand just how bad man's condition is. And that, Father, we can't fix ourselves. And there's not enough money in the government there's not enough printing presses to print enough money to fix this problem. There's not enough smart people, educators, to fix this problem. There's, there's not enough government programs to fix this problem. There's only one solution, and it's Jesus Christ. And I thank you for your son. I thank you for salvation.
I thank you that it is the work of God that without your help, without your Holy Spirit, we could never come to faith in Jesus Christ. You make it possible out of your grace and your mercy. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, it's your turn.